Hey, what's up everyone? I'm Chelsea. Welcome to the Enneagram of Essence. This podcast is about reminding us of what is good about us deep down in our core. Our essence is something pure, beautiful, and powerful that can never be taken from us and never tainted, no matter what we've been through. It is our true self beneath all the layers of defenses, stories, and neurotic habits that we call our personality. Unfortunately, the Enneagram is often used in a way that reinforces our bad habits. It can become one more way to identify with our ego. But the most important thing I've learned from my Enneagram teachers is that our Enneagram type is actually not who we are. It's what keeps us from being who we are. It is possible to embark upon the epic journey from our ego to our essence. And there are two main tools that bring us there. One is the cultivation of presence, which means we must be in contact with ourselves in the living moment, the unfolding now, by having the courage to connect to our bodies, hearts, and minds. The second tool is to have spiritual disciplines or practices that help us return to this presence again and again. And there are myriad ways of doing this, as my guests on this show demonstrate through their stories about their own epic journeys back home to essence. Thank you so much for joining us today. speaking with Anne Murray, who is an Enneagram type two. Anne is a transformational and spiritual coach and Enneagram educator. She has taught the Enneagram to tens of thousands of people over the past 25 years. Teaching the Enneagram is the best gift she has ever given herself. She offers a certification program each year for people who want to use the Enneagram in their personal and professional life. She is the founder of the active Minnesota chapter of the IEA and has served on the International Enneagram Association board. You can learn more about Anne's services and contact Anne through her website, annemurray.com. That's A-N-N-E-M-U-R-E-E.com. Okay, so... Um... We're going to just start with a little bit of centering to to get present, to call in presence as we have this conversation together. So just for a few moments, allowing ourselves to drop into the felt sense of the body here, noticing any sensations, noticing the energy of the body. Allowing this felt sense of embodiment to support 
our presence and our being, including the breath. And as we get in closer contact with our bodies, you might notice that the heart starts to wake up and come online. Starts to peek out, expand. So we'll take a moment to just notice and welcome and include the heart in with our awareness of the body. So body and heart together. And as the heart is given permission to come out of hiding, we might notice that the mind just naturally begins to calm down. Without any forcing, we just allow that to happen. Like sand settling in a glass of water. The mind clears away. And lastly, we'll just bring our attention down to our feet. Reconnecting with the groundedness of the earth and the support of, of the earth beneath us. <clears throat> okay, well, thank you. <laughs> So, and I want to start, um, before we get into our conversation, I want to start by just describing essence qualities of type two and, um, and just for you, you know, if you can just listen to this and then I'll invite you to, to, um, to add whatever, if there's anything you want to add or, um, or even just noticing how the description affects you is is fine, just whatever comes for, up for you after this is, is welcome to share. So the essence qualities, the words for type two that usually get used are love and sweetness. And um, this is, um, these qualities arise when we are present. So in presence, when we're connected to our hearts and to the deeper part of our hearts, there is a natural tenderness and kindness that arises. And um, this love is an intelligent love. It's like all encompassing, a holding of um, both the other and, and the self. And so there's um, this profound sense of relatedness that arises and connection and, and self-love is included in that. And so um, there arises this possibility of, of giving and loving with no strings attached. Um, there's a more unconditional quality that comes in. Um, 
and a love that's free of expectations. And there's a freedom in that to, um, to not be needing anything from, from anyone else. Um, and of course, you know, the, the personality then arises when that contact with presence and, and that real love and sweetness feels like it's gone. <laughs> and the personality arises to try to compensate and mimic that by reaching out to others and um, trying to um, orchestrate connection and relationships. And, and from there on, it gets, it gets stressful. But that essence of that, that love and sweetness is, is always kind of waiting there for us under the surface. So, so that's, that's my attempt at describing something that's indescribable. <laughs> But, but anything you would add or, or say about that, Anne? Thank you so much. Um, the, the unconscious part of type has been um, and continues to be surprising to me that, that the, the compensation for the wound of not feeling lovable keeps getting in the way of that natural essence loving kindness that, that is, is the true essence mm -hmm. quality. And I can see it on my baby pictures. I can, see, I can see the pureness and that sweetness. And then I can sense exactly from the pictures when it left. Oh, and there's wow. a whole different look on my face. <clears throat> and so that ha it happens early. It happens early when when the world gets feels dangerous and you lose the fact that you're lovable. Yes. So mm. um, I'm thrilled to be here today. By the way, I'm oh, so good. happy because um, it helps me to kind of think through the journey and think through what's going on now and how to bring more into consciousness. Wow. Well, thank you. I'm so glad you're here too. <laughs> so, so let's, let's get into that then. Um, so when you think back, I mean, um, you've done so much inner work and transformational work and coaching and stuff with the Enneagram, but it wasn't always that way. <laughs> there was a time before all of that. So when you think back to your younger self who didn't have this information and didn't know she was a type two. Um, what what was happening for you back then? You know, how was your the the kind of programming or autopilot of your personality creating stress for you and for other people in your life as well? Well, that's the that's the part that's so heartbreaking to me is that I didn't even see that it was creating stress. I was so optimistic. I worked really hard. Um, my message in childhood was um, <clears throat> to not be too much. My mother always, every day, many times a day, she'd say, now don't be too much. And I took that to mean that I already was too much or she wouldn't have had to keep saying that. Mm -hmm. And so, but then the other message was, you have to be the best of everything. You have to be able to do everything the best. Well, that's a, that's a difficult um, balance 
to not be too much and to be the best. I, I impossible. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I think about the part that, that when I first heard about the Enneagram, the part that made me so sad was all the big major choices I made in my life from my ego. It had nothing to do with my true self. And um, that just breaks my heart. And then on the other side of that, had I not been brought up in a dysfunctional family um, with the overlays of a lot of different things, family patterns and um, birth order, et cetera, things wouldn't have gotten bad enough for me to do my work. So in a certain way, I am so grateful for that dysfunction and for making those choices. Because had I made smarter choices, let's say, um, I, for example, I majored in math in college for two reasons. One was I was good at math, but the other one was my math teacher in high school was the first woman I ever saw that was both sexy and smart. Oh. The smart women were not real sexy in my childhood and the Sexy women weren't smart. So I thought, well, I have to be a math teacher if I want to be sexy and smart both. <laughs> That's not a good reason to choose your, your, your thrust for how you're going to do your career. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and I chose to, to marry someone to, to get a certain role in my life. So that was not, so those are the things that, that I was not aware of and they weren't, they were producing stress, but I wasn't even aware of the, of the problems. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember one time I was going through um, family treatment at Hazleton and <clears throat> the woman, somebody said to me and, and someone which I just passed in the hallway, they said, oh, your face is smiling, but your eyes are sad. Mm. And I still remember that. And I thought, how does she know that? How could she see that? Mm. So it was obvious to other people, but I didn't, couldn't have articulated it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I recently heard, um, I think it was Beatrice Chestnut, or maybe it was Uranio Paez at the workshop we were at together um, a couple weeks ago. And, and one of them said, I pity the people who um, had really easy childhoods <laughs> and didn't, um, you know, discover or didn't have to endure um, some kind of major suffering because that's usually the thing that launches people into change and, and waking up and seeing ourselves clearly. <laughs> Exactly. And I feel the same way. I am so grateful for the things that weren't um, healthy or wise. Yeah. My choices. Right. Because had I, had I made better choices, like I said, I would, I may never have, I might be dead by now, literally. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But they have saved my life. Wow. Well, for example, just take the, the, the issue of the two not thinking they have any needs. Mm -hmm. I thought that I don't have needs, so I'm here to meet the needs of other people. And I didn't um, 
I didn't quite understand when I learned the Enneagram what that meant about giving to get, because I thought I don't want hot dishes back or I don't want gifts or cards or I, I could care less. But what I wanted was for someone to like me. That was the exchange. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to even recognize that. So the waking up is not quick in my case and it's not easy. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's so much um, reward for being a quote unquote good too, right? I mean, especially as a woman. Well, as a woman, but also I was highly involved with the church and there's part of Christianity that can feed into that service model of the, of the suffering servant. Yes. Of the yeah. Right. Yeah. In a very damaging way. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so um, I think the first time I thought of meeting my needs, I was in my mid thirties or early thirties and I thought I was extremely happy. I had everything I'd wanted, you know, wonderful um, place in the community, marriage, beautiful house, lovely children. And I was a hundred pounds overweight. Mm. So I was so glad you started with some body awareness today because usually for me at least, it took the body to get my attention about things that were not right. I couldn't, I couldn't get there with my reason or my thinking. And so I started because it was a public addiction and people could see it. And I was so image conscious, I, I lost weight and started to take better care of myself. Mm. And, I, and just by eating right and exercising every day. And I remember I, I started a ritual. I was living in this small town and my kids were in middle school and maybe junior high. And um, <clears throat> every day for sunset, I took my bike and rode about three miles into the country and went to this country cemetery and watch the sunset. And I think that was one of my first um, therapy experiences. Mm -hmm. It was nature, but I did it every day. Wow. And I thought this is, um, Mother Nature is where love is. Wow. But that's the first time I recognized that, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then I had an auntie, I had an auntie when I was young who um, was a nine and had no agenda for my improvement. Oh. And, and that was such a treat for me. <laughs> so I think she saved my life, literally, because she just thought it was great the way it was. And she had time to sit and listen and we would sit on her porch and she wasn't just driven to work all the time. And, and so it was... Um, so I think about that and I think the presence of certain people in my life are, are like beacons that shine. And I think, I think that um, just little things that people have said to me that have made major changes in my life, like one sentence. Hmm. So I see that it's so important for people to say what their intuition tells them to say because 
they're the one that's supposed to say that to that person because they need it badly. Yeah. And um, I remember it happened one time when I had um, invited a man that had been writing books and I was reading all these books <clears throat> and, and um, trying to learn what um, human potential was and how to maximize your potential. And <clears throat> but I, this man had been born in the little town that I was living in at that time. And so I invited, I got all the powers that be. I said, I think we need to invite um, this person to come to our town. Well, we did and hundreds of people showed up and it was a big 4th of July celebration. And, and um, I had an autograph party that night at my house. I'd never even been to an autograph party. We only invited the people that liked him and didn't think he was from the other side of the track. So he, we just invited people that were positive. And, and um, after the party, people were just kind of leaving and some were sitting there and he came up to me and he said, you can't let your husband's nervous condition make a nervous wreck out of you. I started crying and I thought, how did he even know? I'd never spoken of that to anyone. Mm. That wasn't something I spoke about in the small town. And so um, that summer he had a school in Montana and it was a 10 day school and he had seven therapists that came from all over the world. And um, there were 120 people that came. I called up three friends out of the blue. Some had moved away from this town and I said, I'm going to Montana for a, re for a workshop and a retreat. Do you wanna come along? And they said, sure. They didn't even ask what it was. So four of us drove to Montana. And, um, and that was the, the life-saving event that helped me get into some of the grief and sadness that I didn't know I was carrying. Mm, yeah. And what was the grief and sadness about at that time? The grief and sadness was just about loss of myself. Mm -hmm. It was about what, how I gave myself away and that I wasn't even aware of it. And, um, and literally not loving myself. Mm -hmm. And then you put the generational grief and the judgment and the shame that, that the family passes down. Um, it was just enormous grief, mm -hmm. enormous grief. And it's taken years. And even now, if I am craving sugar, for example, and I haven't had a lot of sugar in my house during this past year because of, of the solitude. So if I'm craving sugar, I can quickly make something that's really good if I want to eat something with sugar in it. But I, I lie down on my bed and I, I just let myself do this deep crying from the center of my belly. Mm. And it's kind of like retching. And I, I do that maybe 10 minutes and then I get up and I'm fine. Mm. So as difficult as sugar addiction has been for me, it has also been my teacher and my reminder. I couldn't have found a better reminder for when I'm not doing my feelings, when I'm not letting myself feel sadness, I would say, yeah. Wow, that's interesting you bring that up. I love that example of 
just a practice of crying. And I have actually, this is something I've been doing a lot during this pandemic. Um, I've, I've learned to cry, Anne. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yes. And, and I'm discovering um, kind of like what you're saying, like it actually doesn't take too long because my fear is that if I allow myself to cry, it'll consume me and I'll, it'll take over my whole day or my whole week. But really it only takes about five minutes, maybe 10. If I'm crying and just feeling the sensations in my heart and body and not feeding the story about why I'm crying. Exactly. As, exactly. Yes. The, the, the self-pity can come in. I used to cry and feed my story, but now I'm crying just to release the energy and the tension and yes. grief without needing to make a whole um, poor me thing about it, you know? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And just let it out of your body. Yeah. It's rather than, in my case, eating sugar to put it down. So I don't have to deal with it right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that. So um, I'm curious about, um, you know, with this tendency for twos to to give, 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 <laughs> and, and pay, the focus is all on other people. Um, did you have any points in life where that, um, became like something akin to burnout? Yes. Yes. To the point of three times, at least I was at the point where I could have died from burnout. I was so exhausted. I didn't sleep. I just had, I worked and I played, but I didn't sleep. Mm. And I thought I'm a person that doesn't need much sleep. Oh, and that was never true. Yeah. So I learned it first um, with my marriage. I was starting to get sick and I was starting to have pain in my legs. And I knew that um, there was something amiss. And, and I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't give my energy away that, anymore. I couldn't do that. And what I, I, at first I did it with men. I, I, I would choose um, a partner that was um, that needed my energy, needed that. There's something about that two energy that um, that calms people down, uh -huh. and and I didn't I didn't realize that, <laughs> but but that was what it was. It and I just so um, I was able because of that burnout. And the therapy I'd gotten um, to get a divorce, and that saved my life. Mm. But it wasn't about the marriage or my husband or anything. It was about me giving myself away, mm. giving my energy away to be loved, to prove I was lovable. Wow. Yeah. And so it it wasn't about any. It wasn't about anyone else except me. Mm. So then. When I um, um, moved to Minneapolis and changed everything in my life, every single thing changed. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I got a job in corporate America, a good job. And I started um, thinking that I would date again. <laughs> so I did my adolescence sort of after my divorce. And um, 
I got so tired out of, of doing um, those dinners after I'd been working hard all day, because then I would listen all day, and then I would listen all night, and, just, and I, I thought, I can't keep doing this. So I made a list of what I wanted in a relationship, and this person showed up in 30 days with exactly everything on the list. Um, brilliant, educated, um, talented, and he was a soulmate. Yeah. And um, after four years, my legs started hurting again one summer. And I thought, this is off balance. I'm turning into, I'm starting to give myself away again. I could feel it in my body. And, um, and so we broke up and um, it was a mutual breakup. And then he had a mental breakdown. Mm. So I thought this was like a billboard that said to me, you attract men that need your energy for survival and for, for, for coping. Yeah. And I was, uh, I had a really good therapist at that time. She was Jungian therapist. And, and I remember sitting um, in her living room. I know the chair color that I was sitting on. And I was crying and I said, I don't understand why God would give me someone that would be so perfect. And both of us not being healthy enough to, to be a, in a partnership. And she looked at me and she said, I am so glad you had that lover because now you know the felt sense of what it feels like to be with your internal beloved because that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that felt sense of being so loved and connected and accepted within yourself. And that's the first time I realized what the work was for me. I didn't, I, I didn't really know it till then. And I realized it was in my body that I could feel this. And then I went on to burn myself out the third time with so I decided I wasn't going to be dating anymore. I was, I was going to take a break from, from um, men and um, uh, just get myself together. I thought it would take maybe six months with really good therapy. And, <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so um, I then became indispensable, which is my subtype is ambition. And the, the goal is to be indispensable, to feel loved to a whole company and was on the verge of burnout when the company was sold and I lost my job. And that was another huge blessing because I may not have been able to quit that job because I loved it so much. And it was so much fun for me and it was making such a difference to people and it was right on my purpose that I knew at that time. And um, that was the third time that I, I could have died from over overwork. And energy loss. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's it, it is. It feels true that we it we can say our personalities can be the thing that kill us. Absolutely, and I've seen it. I've seen it over and over and over again in all these years. I've seen people that, for whatever reason, and it's not about good or bad or wrong or right, they can't keep growing. They can't do the work. They weren't, that wasn't their purpose during this life, but they die from type over and over. 
And one time Claudio Naranjo told me, he said, um, I've never seen a two that did their work. And I thought, I better pay attention to this. Yeah. He said they did well enough to get into another relationship and then they give themselves away again. Mm. Over and over, that's all they do their whole life. And I paid attention to that. And I thought, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure this out. And I think one of the things that I had, that I think sometimes are, that some of the skill sets from the type also can be helpful in, in our work, doing our work. But I, I'm really good at groups and support and connection. And I used to overdo that. I had too many friends, I had too much connection. I didn't spend time on myself, I was busy connecting all the time. And, but intentionally creating connection is really helpful. And Gurdjieff said, um, he said, it's not hard for someone to do their work by themselves. It's impossible. You have to have support. Right. And so that's why I've intentionally created connections through the years. For example, I've always been in a mastermind group from two to four people always. Right now I'm in a group that's, um, that is um, a harmony triangle group, a 258 group mm. where we get together once a month and, um, and, and talk about the, the issues and what's going on with us. And I have three people that I have connected with once a month for over 25 years with spiritual support. And um, we do lot like, like uh, um, co-coaching or one's two a therapist and one's a spiritual director. And we, we just each get time to work on whatever we're working on and help each other. Yeah. So how do you, in this stage of your life or as you started being more intentional about your connections and relationships, what was your discernment of choosing what types of connection and what types of people were good for you? I, yeah, I have left, left it for intuition. Okay. And it's like, I always know if I really get in my body and settle down, I know like what to do. A workshop would come up in some place and I would throw it in the basket. And then sometimes I'd have to reach in the basket and pick it out. And I thought, no, this is what you're supposed to do. So I've been sort of led to what connections. But I think the, like the specific thing that I have done is I only spend time with people that are energizing to me intentionally. And it doesn't mean I don't see clients. Um, it doesn't mean I won't be there for someone that's, that's having trouble that it's in my network or that I love. Um, but I don't choose friendships with people that need me. And I'm to, in order to feel that need, being needed part of myself. And I can, I can feel that physically pretty quickly mm. now, but I didn't before. I didn't even know I did it. I just thought it was kindness. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned spending more time with yourself too. So I'm curious, you know, what was that like as you were starting to make that transition and, and 
try on solitude um, and how has that changed over the years for you? Well, it started with artwork. I'm, I minored in art in college. And whenever I've been doing artwork, I have felt better. And I recognize that from quite early on. And so I would have an art period, but then what happened is it would turn into a business and I would start selling and then I got overworked again. So art has been a good metaphor for me for, I remember one art teacher told me one time, she said, I want you to paint a painting and promise never to show it to anyone or sell it even to anyone. <laughs> if I couldn't show it. <laughs> and so the artwork has been something I could do by myself that was a way of being with myself and being, getting into that flow state. Mm. And um, I remember um, after I lost my job and um, I was living downtown, I had an art studio and I was going through what I think now is the dark night of the soul or the void or one of, one of those. And I just went down, I got depressed. I've never been depressed in my life. Um, I lost, I'd spent all my money. I was getting over all the addictions I was running when I was working so hard. And, um, and I started um, painting. And I would spend days in my studio. I had a studio downtown. And I, then I would go out with friends or go out to eat or go shopping, but I didn't understand that you couldn't do that. You couldn't do days of solitude and then go right into the world again and start to make me sick. But I didn't understand that. So then I found a teacher that would help me with understanding even how to be in solitude because um, you can't just go from solitude to big um, activity without a transition time. And so I started to consciously want to balance my extrovert introvert uh, and receptivity. And I remember um, I was some class, I think, Marion Gilbert, probably, she said, what twos need to do is breathe into the back of their heart. So you breathe into the back, middle of your back. And that helped me with that receptivity. So I, I, I do that to this day. But I consciously started meditating, got a group to get myself meditating. And um, we met every Sunday morning at eight o'clock for years and nobody missed if they were in town. And that was enough support to get into doing my own practices every day. And then um, probably in the last, oh, 10 years, I thought I, I got so happy because I could, I started to like solitude. I started to actually like it. And compared to what I used to run with solid activity morning, noon and night, this was a whole new revelation. And um, my goal was to balance so I could be live happily by myself. That was my goal. And not be longing for um, a relationship or lonesome for 
a lover or anything. I, I just wanted to learn to live happily by myself and be able to enjoy the solitude. And so I felt so joyful. I got in touch with a joyfulness that I didn't even know existed. It was surprising because my mother was very devout and she did a lot of work on herself and she got peaceful and she never got joyful. She never got that blissfulness. Mm. And so when that started coming in, I was just so grateful. I thought, if solitude will give me this feeling, then it's worth the, the effort and all the years it's taken to, to get to that. But then bringing this into the present, if someone had told me a year ago, this is March now in um, 2021, if someone had told me in March, 2020, that what I needed was a year of solitude, I would have said, you must be kidding me. <laughs> and so this has been a gift for me of unbelievable value to me. For one thing, I was able to do it because of all the years I've been working and doing this. But then to get the opportunity to really put myself into a place where I could do, I could do Sabbath every day if I wanted to. Mm. And I could just be really, really peaceful with myself and see what it was like to balance my life. And, 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 and last week I got really tired. I've been working hard. And I thought, here I am with um, the same thing again. So I thought, my friends go to Florida or California this time of the year. So I'm going to have my own little trip to Florida in my own house. <laughs> so yesterday, and this was just this since this weekend. So yesterday, four clients from all over the world canceled, all four of them. Wow. Now, that was just shocking to me because I thought I'll take Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday I'll work. And they all canceled. So I thought, this tells me that the universe is helping me with this. Yeah. That's never happened in all these years of coaching. Nobody, once, I mean, people reschedule and that's never a problem and it just works all right. But never have I had four in a whole day that rescheduled at the same time and two of them were the night before. Wow. And so I'm being supported for solitude now. And so, but but you see, I still get into the overwork once in a while. It's not like it's one and done. Yeah. I love that, I love that little poem about the hole in the sidewalk mm -hmm. and how it took a long time before he realized he could go down another street or she realized she could walk down another street and not even go by the hole or keep falling in. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I feel like I'm never that far away from that hole in the sidewalk. And I have to remind myself, oh, you can go down another street. You don't have to go here. Mm. You don't have to do that same thing over and over. Yeah. So the word, the word receptive stood out to me when you were talking about meditating and breathing through your heart, the back of your heart. And, and receiving for twos is, um, is a huge part of the journey of transformation to, to learn that. Um, 
And so I'm wondering, you know, what is receiving like for you now, or what what does it even mean to you to to receive? Well, I know that it's shifting because I'm getting more from people. So I know that it's shifting, but it's still not there. It's still hard for me. I have trouble writing timely thank you notes. And I know, I realize that's still a shame about receiving. And I'm not proud of that, but I just want to say that this is a huge thing. This is a huge thing for two, mm-hmm. is to be receptive and to say, thank you. What, how lovely of you to, to do that. Thank you so much. And I've been able to say that for a long time, even, even in compliments. I've been able to say thank you for decades, but to not have any, any, you know, talking in my head about if you only knew or something like that. Uh, so it's to be really open-heartedly receptive and trust that people are smart. It gives them the opportunity to give, which is a blessing. Uh, and so I think what I've started to recognize is that giving and receiving is on the same continuum. Mm -hmm. And if you're only on one end, you don't understand it and you can't really benefit as much as you could if you recognize that Mm -hmm. it's it's both. It's giving and receiving both. And does does this also apply, like in your experience, um, to learning to receive from from god or source or universe however you want to name it you know what is what is that journey (laughs) i think i think it's about trust um and i call it opening up your upper limit Hmm. i think we have upper limits that keep us from receptivity and um I've never worried about having enough money or anything. My mother believed you'd always have enough money and and that was what she passed down. I thought, I don't have to ever worry about not having enough. But abundance hasn't always felt that comfortable. Mm -hmm. And not just abundance of money, but abundance of everything. And so it's about opening up more and more to the blessings of God or source or whatever you want to say. And for example, those cancellations or those rescheduling clients yesterday, that was a gift from God. I thought, I don't even have to worry about if I need an extra day of rest, I'll get it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And the same way with opportunities of knowing what to do, or I just, um, I was listening to some, interviews with different teachers and one group was about they were breath workers and many years now I've done a lot of breath work starting out early on and and kind of doing it from time to time but um one of the speakers was so good and I thought I have to look up to see if he's written a book and he did so I ordered the book and I started doing breath work again in a new way that has just been absolutely remarkable, just remarkable for me. 
And I think that's God telling me to listen to this um, summit of all these interviews with all these teachers and then get this particular book. And then now this, because this is what you need next. It's like things are just given to me at the right time. And sometimes it's from friends, sometimes it's from um, clients, sometimes it's from neighbors, it just can be anything. That's why I think it's so important if our intuition tells us to say something to someone or to do something, then do it because it's important for that person. It's important to participate in the whole um, balance and the workings of the universe. So I'm curious, and because you you have so much wisdom, I don't want to get through this conversation without asking you, what would you say to young twos? Um, if, if you had a, a group of young twos, young adults sitting in front of you, um, just what is some one thing that they can start focusing on or shifting because we clearly can't do it all at once but what is one thing that they can start with i think for young twos it's about self-esteem and it's about building themselves up so they can even start to look at shadow i think that one of the issues with growth in all the heart types is that the shame is so big that it's hard to even be open to um, making new choices because you can't even see it because of the shame. Mm. Oh, I think anything you can do as a young two all by yourself mm. and that you don't, that doesn't include anyone else mm. and Anything you can say to yourself about how lovable you are and that you love yourself. And sometimes it's helpful for young twos to keep a compliment box. Anytime anyone tells them anything positive, put it in the box and read it over and start to really believe that because it takes longer than you think to be able to believe that you're lovable when you forgot that when you were four years old, Mm. or probably verbal even, when you were little. Yeah. And I I love that uh, Louise Hay mirror work where you look in the mirror every day and tell yourself how beautiful you are and how much you love yourself. That's really good for twos. It seems like a simple thing, but it isn't. I remember one time when I I was traveling and I was learning about affirmations and I started, I was driving through North Dakota early one morning and I was going to Bismarck and I started singing, God loves me, I love myself. And I sang it and I sang it and I sang it and I sang it. And all of a sudden, all my tears just started pouring down my cheeks. And I thought that has taken away some blockage about self-love. Mm being lovable and that said to me this is something to keep on doing because it's a big it's a big issue yes okay so here's here's a question um about affirmations um 
type two is, is one of the Enneagram types who um, have this positive outlook and tend to reframe things in a limiting way um, that is only looking at part of reality. <laughs> um, although it, it's not a bad thing in, a, in and of itself, but it's limited. Um, so, so what is, um, like how do we hold a healthy affirmation practice of saying positive things to ourselves? when there is also this instantaneous um, positive reframe that, that happens. You know, what is um, the connection there? Is there any danger there? How do we skillfully use affirmations if we're um, one of those positive outlook types? This is such a good question, Chelsea. Thank you for asking this question. Um, Positive outlook is helpful in many, many situations. And the two tends to overuse it and can stay in harmful situations for decades because they won't see that it's, um, it's not okay, that they've got to change. And that's happened to me. Well, in order to see that and wake up enough to see, oh, this is, this is really serious. There's something bad here. Like the, the therapist that talked to me at my house party years and years ago, I, I didn't understand how he could even see that because I, I couldn't see it. And I thought, well, I'm strong. I'm the healthy one. I'm, I'm the one that's going to get through this. Well, what the trick is for twos is they have to build to a point of self-love and, and reducing shame enough to even start to entertain the dark, the shadow. Mm. So the problem isn't doing too many affirmations. The problem is that you'll never be able to let in positive enough so you can start to see that your optimism is overdone. They're not the opposite. Does that make sense? They're yeah. Part of the thing. Yes. Self-loving affirmations are part of being able to accept yourself enough and stop the shame. Because you can't make the positive changes unless you drop the shame. If you still have that judge when, when you're aware of something, then you can't stop it. You can't make other choices. Mm, yeah. Because the, the judge locks in. The judge locks in. Did you see? The shame is the issue. It's not the positive outlook, and it's not the affirmations. When you can get strong enough to drop the shame, then you can see that, oh, this isn't working. I'm not seeing the whole truth here. Mm. I have to really get into the emotional honesty and, and deal with this. Mm. And that's where all that crying comes from with twos. It's that, that the well of grief is so deep that they can't begin to start that unless they're feeling much better about themselves than they are at the beginning. Mm. Yeah. And it, it, it seems like there's, 
you know, this is one of those things where it's, it's both and, <laughs> and, and the, the, sh the shadow that's the, the darkness, the difficult emotions that feel so dangerous to feel yeah. are also so important to feel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, because if you don't, you'll die. You will re literally die if you keep on with that optimism. Because, yeah. because you don't won't see the you won't see the problems. Yeah. Yeah. And and so it's it's deadly. The optimism is deadly, but it's also one of the things that'll save you. Uh, right. The affirmations are not necessarily unrealistic it's something that's really true if you're really ugly don't tell yourself you're beautiful or unless you say you have a beautiful heart or something <laughs> but you can say i love you and you can say that you you belong to the universe you're a child of the universe um, um it's your birthright to claim your crown you were you were meant to be who you were meant to be you can say things like that to yourself that are really helpful yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm, I love that. And then I also think that when things happen in your life, that instead of thinking, oh, this has to be reframed to be something positive, just accept what it is and say, this is for me. It's not happening to me, it's happening for me. Mm. And what's the lesson here? So if we can start to ask for the lesson versus either think there's no lesson, there's no problem, there's nothing wrong here, or if I don't see what's wrong, I'm going to go, I'm going to die. It's like, just start to, start to stop the reactivity. I mm. think once you can start to realize that your reactivity to judgment to um, um, attachment, to um, uh, resistance, all those judgments, all those judgments, all those reactions are from reactivity mm -hmm. and are type that sets up the reactivity. So just accepting, just saying, oh, huh, this is the perfect thing right now, whatever it is, mm -hmm. versus thinking, is bad I've got to reframe it and make it positive right yes mm -hmm. <laughs> does that answer your question it does yes thank you um so we're we're getting close to the end of our time here um but is there anything else you want to share that you feel like is important that we haven't touched on yet just want to check Well, one thing I, I um, that is a, it's been a kind of a shortcut for me is that um, anytime I get stuck today, I know for sure it's type related. Mm. So that's a way to say, okay, how is image affecting you? How is wanting to be liked affecting you? How is approval affecting you? How is connection affecting you? What's causing this stuckness? And that'll help me move it out. Move it out. Mm. So it's using the 
Enneagram for uh, <clears throat> not just a tool, but kind of a, a lifeline and a, and a gadget that is going to keep you doing things more quickly and moving, moving the process. Mm. Yes. Thank you. So I would like us to close our time together with a poem. And um, the one that I chose for type two is called The Journey, and it's by Mary Oliver. So, um, you know, I'm noticing now it's, it's kind of a long poem. So I think I will only just read it one time and I'll read it kind of slowly so we can receive it in, in, a, in a meditative way um, and listen with not just our heads, but our hearts and our bodies as well. So, so as I'm reading this, um, just, you know, we'll just kind of let it wash over us and see if there's a word or a phrase that, that stands out to you. And, um, and we'll, we'll name that at the end. So this is The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day, you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So what stands out to you, Anne? I think this is a perfect um, poetry choice for twos. Um, what, I, what stood out for me in this time of, reading, of hearing it is that I knew what I had to do. Mm. Yes. And that I could trust that. And we all have that within us, that we do know what to do. Mm. And that I always will. Yes. So there really isn't any need for um, other people to understand it or to um, be okay with it or anything. Just to trust that I know what to do and listen to my own voice. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, to me, it, it was similar. It was this, this piece about it was your own voice. There was a new yeah. voice. It was your own voice. Yeah. And in bringing the focus of attention 
inward. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's that's that's a huge shift. Yeah. Yeah. So. So thank you so so much for spending this time together. I really really appreciate it, Anne. Thank you, Chelsea, for asking me. I have I have just loved this, so I appreciate it. Big shout out to singer-songwriter Lynn O'Brien, who provided our theme music for this podcast. You can find her music and coaching work online at lynnobrien.love. For more on my work, including Enneagram courses, coaching, Enneagram art, and spiritual direction, visit chelseaforbrook.com. Please share this podcast with your friends, and I look forward to having you join us next week for our next epic journey. Until then, may the deep peace of presence be with you.